Hello again, I'm Eric with SmartPot Fabric Planners, back with another episode of The Growing Revolution. And the topic that I wanted to cover today was food security or food insecurity. Is the food that we eat safe, nutritious, and guaranteed to be on store shelves? One of our favorite guests, Milo Seamus of Dr. Earth, agreed that this was an important topic and uh, granted us some of his valuable time to discuss this uh, further and some of the current events that are going on and their possible implications for us. Milo, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Eric. Great to be here. Yes. So it seems like every week there's more headlines that are talking about uh, negative impacts on our food production uh, industries, food processing plants exploding, factory fires, bird flu forcing ranchers to kill whole herds, rising fuel and fertilizer prices uh, have me worried. The Ukraine is one of the biggest uh, exporters of wheat in the world, and we all know that they're uh, having issues over there right now. Um, you know, am I wrong to be concerned? No, you, you have every right to be concerned, uh, rightfully concerned. I mean, the world is in a state of dislocation right now. There's nothing consistent that you and I can depend on like we did not more than two years ago. So, I mean, you're very, very accurate, I think, in your concern. Yeah, I mean, the uh, just from being uh, in the stores, it seems like the prices are going up uh, every day. And, and the government came out recently and said that inflation was at 9.1%. And we all know those figures are highly bogged down. So it's probably double that or, or even more. Um, so I don't know. What, what are some things that I could be growing to lower my grocery store bill? I think you grow as much as you possibly can, given your unique situation. And, and you know what I mean by that is if you live in an apartment building and all you can grow is, you know, something in a, uh, in a raised bed container. I'm sorry, not a raised bed, but like a windowsill container um, and grow as many herbs as you can. We'll do that because that'll save you a fair amount of money in buying basil, thyme and some of them, you know, rosemary, some of the more expensive fresh herbs. So you can start with that all the way to, if you're lucky like I am, I live on approximately one acre of land in Northern California. And um, there is a lot of, you know, available square footage around my house that I can plant fruit trees in. And I have several raised beds. And I think that's, you know, there seems to be this, um, this massive opportunity, Eric, with, with raised beds. And um, I really do believe every American home should have several raised beds. And to answer your question more specifically, I think that people really should be focusing on what they spend the most amount of money on, number one, in terms of fresh produce, number two, what's in season and what can actually grow in their region should be another emphasis, uh, you know, a huge emphasis uh, for gardeners, simply because time is the most important asset we have as gardeners. and. The la you know, we don't, especially when it comes to food uh, security, the last thing we really want to do is experiment and say, hey, will guava grow in my backyard and I live in Michigan? But that's probably, you know, a failed experiment from the get-go. So, I mean, grow what works in your area. And um, the fastest way to do it is to, you know, use a lot of raised beds. And uh, that, that's my favorite way to control it. Uh, raised beds do many things. They give you the control to... Uh, 
uh, introduce the best quality soil you want. And that's so important. And, uh, you know, you really, you're not inheriting anybody's um, uh, pr past sins. And, uh, you know, I came up with a product called uh, Clean uh, Soil Detox for that very reason. It was because, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, Eric, I, was, I grew up, uh, you know, as a kid in the 70s in Los Angeles. And you can imagine, like, the stuff that I saw. and really didn't know what I was seeing at the time, but... People just dump their crap out in their backyard. That's what motor oil, God knows uh, what. That's the way it was. I mean, all my friends, their dads were like would change the motor oil on the weekends or their, their motorcycles or if they painted the house lacquer. I mean, it was just normal. It wasn't even like there was anything wrong with it. You would even drive down the street and see guys at the curb, you know, just cleaning out their paint, uh, five-gallon paint cans, and just dumping it on the curb, like and just running down the drain with their hoses on it. I don't think anybody was malicious at the time, but nobody knew. So their backyard was literally the dump. Motor oil, lacquers, varnish, thinner. I mean, everything bad you can imagine, the poor soil got it. So, I mean, and then here we come, and we want to grow really healthy fruits and vegetables to consume. Now, the ornamentals, that's a totally different world, and you and I addressed that lightly last time. That's fine. And as a matter of fact, it's good, because those ornamentals absorb some of the contaminated... Um, uh, elements in the soil and as you remove the ornamental plants you've actually cleaned your backyard so there's a whole and that's a whole different discussion that we can you know get into sometime in the future but for that reason raised beds give you absolute control and um, you're not uh, growing in anything that's uh, you know in the native soil fruit trees are much more forgiving but when it comes to short um, um, a short time frame kind of a crop something you're growing within two to five months Boy, they're aggressive feeders, and they're just absorbing everything. And I think in a situation like that, you want the soil to be really nice, loose, friable. And in a raised bed, you can accomplish all those things. And that's uh, for that reason, I love raised bed gardening. I think it's the best way for America to get ahead of this whole food um, um, you know, security uh, fears that we all have. I mean, we're all afraid of it for multiple reasons. It's not so much that... Can we afford it or are we paying too much for it? But can we trust it? And is it what they say it is? I mean, there's two different components. Even the wealthiest person on earth should have a real motivational purpose to grow their own food. Okay, maybe they can afford 10 pounds for tomatoes. That's great. Maybe it's not a financial thing. But maybe they want absolute control of the nutritional value. You know, that whole, uh, the density of uh, nutrients is... is so important because if we think about nutrient density today versus nutrient density um, 70 years ago, I mean, you would have to grow based on statistics that um, we've done extensive research uh, on this, uh, you know, in our company. And, and, you know, just 15 years ago, it used to be three and a half times. And I'm going to use uh, iceberg lettuce as an example. It used to be three and a half heads of lettuce in 2009 to equal um, one head of lettuce in uh, 1950 in the United States. So currently, it's down to over four and a quarter heads of lettuce to one uh, head of uh, lettuce uh, in today's uh, standards. That's if you're dealing with conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. The soils are so depleted of nutrition. And so if you're a gardener and you're growing in raised beds and you're doing it for those reasons, it's a great benefit. God, that's such an easy way to do it. It's, and it's my favorite shortcut to being healthy. Raised bed gardener. It's yeah. so simple. 
Yeah, I I uh, wish I could. I wish I showed you a picture from this last week in Florida. We just got rain every day, and my backyard, the back part of the yard is the sunniest part of the yard, and that's where I put my raised bed. But there's like about th three inches. There was probably three inches of standing water where those raised beds were. And if I had planted in soil, um, I think all my plants would have died uh, just from, you know, lack of oxygen to the roots. Right. So um, your your best place for growing your vegetables sun-wise might not be your best place drainage-wise uh, water. So uh, raised beds and containers definitely alleviate those issues. It gives you absolute control. And uh, especially if it's a, well, even if it's a built-in raised bed and you build it out of cinder block, you're going to choose where it goes because you know your property. Um, yep. Now back to what I, you know, uh, mentioned earlier, you know, of using every square foot you can on your property. Um, you may not have the luxury of putting a place bed, you know, south facing or, or west facing to capture that beautiful, uh, you know, midday afternoon sun. Um, then you, especially in a situation like that, um, if you're on the north side or if, you know, the, the water drain back towards the house and it puddles up, just kind of like you just described right now, then you have to do raised bed gardening. I mean, that's the only way you can absolutely control it. And, um, and you know, one, one other thing I'd like to touch upon is that I think there's a lot of people that are, you know, very much afraid to garden in their front yard. And, you know, I think people should garden in their front yard. I think, you know, people pretend like, um, the front yard is a no-touch zone, and it has to have a lawn and, you know, some shrubbery leading up to the house. And that's the way most Americans treat their homes. I mean, you know, that's the way I was raised. We had a lawn, some rose bushes, and some other, uh, you know, some ornamental uh, trees and shrubs uh, as you get to the front door. And uh, that was it. But, I mean, why not take your front lawn? Why not? And drop in a series of well-organized Raised beds. I mean, if somebody were to look at their front lawn as, as kind of a launching pad for your garden, for your organic vegetable garden, you can literally go in there. And, and I know you guys make some, uh, some really good quality um, uh, raised beds that breathe, and, and I, I especially like that uh, component of it. But I mean, just imagine being able to use um, these raised beds kind of like a very quick pop-up tent. So you can organize them and set them up on top of the lawn. Living grass, don't, do not remove anything. Just put them directly on top of the lawn, organize them in a series of, you know, two, three, four, five, or two rows of three, four, five. And um, then you can use your lawn kind of to walk around and have access to all these raised beds. So that's another really easy way that uh, you can grow uh, and, uh, you know, utilize every uh, square foot of your home. You know, I've done extensive uh, research and, uh, you know, I'll release that to you and, um, and, and we'll put it up on the, on the video after, uh, you know, you edit this and um, we're able to put some of the graphics later. But um, for every square foot of soil that you grow on in a raised bed, there is a real financial value to that. I mean, it's money you're not spending, first of all, um, at the store. And especially if you're growing the really expensive crops. I mean, if you're growing, let's say, ginger root or... Um, turmeric root or some of the more exotic things. I mean, really dollar dense stuff. Um, you know, you can turn those raised beds into money makers. At the end of the year, you're talking about thousands of dollars you didn't have to spend on food. And not only did you make thousands of dollars on your front lawn, literally, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but your front lawn could be your own little mini 
food factory uh, to grow all these things that you never thought you really could. And you know, the other thing I've noticed too, uh, Eric, is that most people's front uh, yard tends to be some of the best growing area. That's just the way they kind of lay these cities out. I mean, the front yard seems to have a lot of space. And uh, this is most homes, not every home in America, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, they say that, that's a great way to, to capture all of that square footage and uh, capture that money uh, that you're leaving behind. And then the other part of it is, um, you know, Mother Nature loves you and you're minimizing your carbon footprint. So every time we grow food at home and we do not buy it from the supermarket, we've just reduced the carbon that's emitted into the uh, environment. We're not driving to the store to buy it. We're not paying farmers to grow it, then harvest it, then drive it to the supermarket. All of it may be potentially purchased, a lot of it not. Then a lot of it may make its way back to the, uh, to the landfill. And you know, you can imagine all these touch points when if you grew it, you're not driving, you're not moving around. It's actually, you're contributing to, to, to global. And you're getting exercise too. I mean, everything, there are so many benefits to being a raised bed gardener and growing it as much as you can at home. I mean, your home is a factory. It really is a farm. Um, short of growing stuff on a pitch roof, and I don't recommend anybody garden on the roof unless you're living in a you know, tall skyscraper and you have that security of a building. You should really look at your home, every square foot of it, as, as, as a money-making uh, machine. Raised beds here, trees as, you know, as, as many places as you possibly can, fruit trees, of course. Get rid of the ornamentals. If you own your home and you know you're going to be there for years, an uh, a fruit tree today um, you know, will give you fruits for the rest of your life. Let's say you're 30 years old and you planted a, an avocado tree today. Can you imagine the value of harvesting avocados for 30 or 40 years? You know the cost of, of avocados these days. I mean, it's so expensive. Oh, it is. I mean, you know, one avocado tree can be worth, you know, $50,000 to you in your lifetime by the time you harvest every avocado from it for 30 years and you give it to your friends and family. And who knows? You may uh, grow so many avocados, you can sell them at the local <laughs> swap meet or trade them. I know a lot of gardeners that they go and they trade with, you know, if you have too many avocados, you make a trade with the guy that's got too many tomatoes. So it's just a lot. Bringing back bartering. Yeah, exactly. That's the way we, uh, we kind of evolved. And, uh, but that's one way to do it, Eric, is uh, raise beds. Very efficient, very quick. Uh, no holes uh, needed. Uh, you guys make a great one. Uh, if they want to build one, phenomenal. Control the soil. We know it's clean because you built it. You created it. All of the input materials that went into it, you have absolute control over those choices that you made to feed your family and, and how to grow it and, and you know what medium you're using. I mean, there's just so much control with growing your own food and, and doing it in raised beds. I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what, you know, uh, two, 100, 200 years ago, the turf grass lawn was kind of concocted as a status symbol for rich people to show off like, hey, I'm so rich, I can just buy all my own food and I have this big lawn that I can waste on turf grass. And I think it's time we bring back the... Uh, the garden as the status symbol and you know have people be wowed by how much food is being produced in people's front yards um hopefully they don't steal it but <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but if they do that means they're desperate and they probably do yeah, they, they need it exactly but you know eric when was the last time you drove down the street and uh and you drove by somebody's lawn and you, and you stopped and you said hey honey and you spoke to your wife you said hey honey 
take a look at how beautiful that lawn is or look how green that lawn is. It's kind of like, yeah, big deal. But when was the last time you drove by somebody's house that was actually a front yard gardener and they had that really beautiful, and I, there, there's not too many of those guys out there, but the guys that typically do garden on the front yard tend to be very good gardeners, I've noticed. And uh, yeah. they organize it very, very nicely. It's not just, you know, a tomato plant on the, you know, just some sporadic area. They're usually very organized, tiered, you know, like uh, grouped together and it's beautiful. I mean, a front lawn with edible plants on it is, is stunning. I mean, when you drive by somebody's growing their, their edible crop in front of their homes, you will stop and you will take note and say, hey, honey, look how beautiful that guy's garden is. Tomato. Yeah. My neighbors are always commenting on our front uh, garden where we do herbs and carrots and stuff. And I see them drive by and they're always looking to see, you know, what the latest progress is. So, yeah, uh, gardens over grass, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Food, food gardens over grass. Food gardens. We're talking about food security and you need that front lawn. I mean, if there's three parts to a home, right, Eric? Maybe three and one eighth. There's the front the home and the backyard. And maybe if you're lucky enough, you have a long enough driveway and there's some space, you know, some soil space between the right and left side of the driveway, you can, you know, put some edibles in there. But yeah, I mean, if we're talking about your normal homeowner and, and if you don't include the front yard in your, in your you know, your overall uh, strategy and, and, you know, your mathematics, I mean, you're really missing out on the, the majority of the opportunity. You must include the front uh, yard, and I'll, I'll stop it there because I'm, I'm really passionate about that. Because I want people to garden, and I know there's only so much space in the backyard. So I mean, you have to use yep. the front yard unless you're in an HOA. Or you, I feel really bad for you, like like I am, and they're terrible. Um, but unless you're in an HOA, you can garden in your front yard. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, you organize, be polite to your neighbors, and I think your neighbors would appreciate you. You know. And I'll let it go at that. No more uh, front yard gardening. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of people who want to garden uh, at home and, and grow the healthiest uh, plants possible want to do it organically. Um, now, on a scale of one to ten, how important is it to be using beneficial microbes when you're gardening organically? Uh if there's a 12 on that 10, that's what I would say. I mean, you have to be a biological gardener if you're an organic gardener. You have to. I mean, it's kind of like saying I'm a human being and wants to eat food, but I don't know how I'm going to extract the nutrients from it and break them down inside my intestine and get any nutritional value from it. Without microbes, nothing happens. I mean, you have to be a biological gardener. And that's, that's a term that I coined years ago because I love that. I think I think there's this huge misunderstanding between, uh, you know, organic gardening and and, uh, and synthetic gardening. And you know, one of the raw ingredients that I think confuses a lot of people is cocoa coir. I mean, I know you're very familiar with that ingredient, and it's not, you know, and, and there's a lot of guys that want to use cocoa coir, but they want to use dry, mealy, organic fertilizers, but they don't mix it like uh, you and I would, uh, like a peat moss, as maybe five to twenty percent in a um, in an overall like potting soil blend, for example, they want to grow in pure cocoa coir and they want to use dry organic fertilizers and they want the microbes to work to break the materials down. Well, unless you have a living soil, a medium that can actually stimulate and, uh, and, uh, and allow these microbes to do their job and, and breaking down these uh, organic materials, 
well, the plant just never benefits from it. And the key number to look for, um, uh, Eric, is 27%. You must have 27% moisture content in the soil to break all microbes out of dormancy. That's, that's, that's the percentage. So as long as soil is moist and remains moist, you have biology and the ability to keep the biological component moving and digesting all of the uh, carbon-based uh, uh, fibers that it uh, would uh, come into uh, contact with, i.e. organic fertilizers. Nice, nice. Um, now, let's say that, you know, I've just got an itch to get food on my plate. What are some of the fastest growing crops that I can, uh, you know, put in the ground tomorrow for as quick a turnaround time as possible? Well, I mean, the, the easiest one, the one that you don't even really need a raised bed for, you can do it on a napkin, is radish. I mean, you know, like within 16 to 21 days, you can have a complete radish harvest. But, and, and I like to do radishes in between my other crops, especially early on. Let's say if I'm planting tomatoes, I'm just going to use that as an example, or, or cucumbers or peppers. You know, you have to have spacing in there. And until those uh, tomato plants are tall enough to where they create a canopy, you still have all that soil space. So what I do is I'll put radish and very quick uh, growing sprouty type uh, plants in between them and I'll get that quick harvest in the first three weeks, and then I'll allow the canopy of the tomato to fully take over. But you know, really, Eric, it's gonna come down to uh, where you live and um, the amount of uh, you know, uh, water you can, I mean, if you're growing completely in raised beds and you have a lot more control, I suspect you'll have access and the ability to water every day. But if you're growing in ground and you're doing a larger uh, you know, type of uh, gardening application, obviously, you know, water is a big deal. Um, temperature, again, determines what types of crops you're growing. But I think, you know, broad spectrum answer would be where you live. Tomatoes are great this time of year. But just make sure you're more, uh, you're very cognizant of the varieties that you choose. If you live in a colder environment, you probably want to look at, if we're, you know, we're talking tomatoes, you probably want to look at a Korean variety or something that can really take those cooler temperatures. And if you live in Florida like you do, or in Southern California like, you know, where I came from, then you really can grow those more, you know, those Italian and those Mediterranean varieties. And I think it's just being cognizant of what you like, what, you, what grows in your area, but then really drilling down to that, that variety that you know will do well for you, and especially if you have a short season. Like a lot of the people in the uh, Pacific uh, uh, Northwest and the guys in, in the Northeast, um, they have short seasons. They, they have to get in and out. So they need very, uh, they need crops that mature quickly. And again, going uh, towards your Korean varieties or your um, uh, your, your Russian varieties and uh, you know things of that nature, you would do much better. Um, you know, if you live in those northern regions uh, in the United States, and that's that makes sense. but to really drill down to uh, whether you grow a tomato a pepper or a zucchini, I think that's personal preference. But I think they're all doable. And there's varieties that will work in Florida, and there's varieties that will work in, uh, in, in Maine. And they're both tomatoes, and they're both cucumbers. I just think you have to be uh, aware of that detail. And just don't assume that if you order from a seed catalog that it's going to grow in your uh, region or in your specific area. Just pay attention yeah. to details. I, I love your tip about putting radishes uh, in between your, you know, uh, tomatoes before they get mature that's you know just such a great use of that space 
Um, Thank you. Love it. Yeah, I mean, you maximize it. You're going to be there. You're going to water it anyways. Why not take advantage of like having a double crop? Yeah. Simultaneously, yeah. the effort's going to be made anyways, and you're going to spend the water bill. You might as well get a double crop out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for, you know, beginner growers, if, if you're not sure, you know, what you should be planting, just some quick, you know, Google and YouTube searches, like look up what USDA climate zone you're in and then punch into Google or YouTube, what can I plant in July in zone nine? So you'll get a ton of videos, great content. Um, so... Milo, I wanted to ask, you know, if you had any final thoughts or, you know, avenues that we that you wanted to explore uh, in the topic of food security slash insecurity. Um, you know, I would just highly urge, you know, when let's go back to why you and I are even talking about the subject. And it's obviously it's because there's there's shortages and um, a lot of shortages. And, you know, COVID has really amplified everything to everybody on earth. I mean, I don't think you're immune uh, to it. I mean, look at Western Europe. They're gonna, you know, if the Russians cut them off with, uh, with oil, I mean, they're already beginning to ration and uh, cut people's uh, power off. We're talking about Western Europe and, and modern times, Eric. I never thought I would say, I mean, we're, this is Germany. We're not talking about some poor third world country. Germany, one of the most advanced nations on the face of the planet, who has you know, access to the best quality of life. These guys are going on an energy diet. They can't live the way they lived not very long ago. So I mean, these are real challenges. And I think when we talk about food security, it's not just, well, can I substitute wheat for, um, for corn? to make whatever you know, I was making that evening. I mean, if you're a pasta guy, you can have rice pasta, you can have uh, salmonella pasta, you can you know, really get it from a lot of different sources. Potato pasta, I mean, you see egg. There's all types of sources, but quality. As we run into these food shortages and these food crises uh, type of scenarios, I think a lot of manufacturers that make processed foods, uh, packaged foods, what they begin to do Eric, is they begin to take shortcuts. Um, and if you look at the label, you'll notice that they'll put like wheat and corn and soy almost back to back, all three ingredients. Now, have you ever paid attention to that detail? And if you haven't, I'll tell you I, exactly. I do. Most people don't though, I think. But do you, you know why? Maybe it's, you know, I owe it to your listeners to tell them why I know they do that. Um, I mean, if you put the most ubiquitous or most available commodities, in America on your label and you put them back to back and let's just say right now you and I are heading into a food uh, crisis and let's just say the real valuable ingredient is not corn or soy and it's before that and that 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 commodity the price spikes up and these manufacturers can't afford to take the uh, the, the margin hit on it so what's the first thing they do they're going to cheapen the product and they're going to use more corn and uh, more, so, uh, more soy, uh, for example, or more wheat even, for that uh, matter. And, but they can do that legally because they put it on the label for you. They're not telling you whether it's 12% or 22% or 32%. They can alter that percentage. Right. So, I mean, I think the more we're aware of it as, as just smart consumers and as people who are going through life with, with our, you know, our eyes wide open, 
we're aware of that. So when we buy a product, we're, we're uh, you know, we like, we're accustomed to, we feed our family with all the time. Well, if we hear, hey, guess what? There's no more wheat available. For example, I'm going to use the uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, big stress on them. It's, it's wheat. That's the commodity. And if you think to yourself, well, there's really no wheat available, and you look at the ingredient list and you say, you see wheat, corn. I would just highly recommend that you probably assume that it's going to be more corn than wheat when you're going through these tumultuous times and uh, commodity dislocations, when the flow of commodities are disrupted and you simply can't ship a commodity from point A to point B. Food manufacturers begin to take shortcuts. Well, I mean, is it really your job as a consumer to sit there and say, oh my God, I need to understand the global movement of commodities? I mean, just think about what I just said. You know how complex that is? Guys go to school for 10 years to understand how difficult that is to, uh, to wrap your head around. Well, the easier way to do it is to grow as much as you can, buy as much as you can from the farmer's market when it's open that time of year, get to know your local growers, barter with them. If you're an accountant, do the guy's books and get as many fruits and vegetables and even meat from, uh, from them as you can. And everybody is, you know, within an hour of some suburban area where people are growing cows and sheep and, and chickens and, uh, you know, things of that nature. So everybody can negotiate a deal with somebody. Um, but fruit security is, is kind of like an, an art form, you know, really making sure you get the best quality food for yourself and for your family becomes the real trick here. And, you know, it really prompted this whole interview between you and I was um, uh, the talk that we did on uh, the, um, the chicken manure and GMOs. And that kind of led into many different things. And obviously we're here for that reason. And, you know, I received... Um, Gosh, thousands of comments on our Facebook page um, of your interview. Uh, people just up in arms, didn't know, did not know um, that uh, chicken manures uh, contain GMOs. So that was a big deal for them. Um, and, um, and, and food security did come up on many of those comments. And um, as of today, Eric, I, I took a look before uh, I got on uh, your show, and we we're at over 130,000 uh, views. As of, nice. as of today, and it's only been a week since we put it out. So people are hungry, people are thirsty for this knowledge. And, you know, I think as we build these raised beds, as we do business with our neighbors and, um, and with the local growers, just understand what they're using. I mean, you know, you and I talked about this. Just because it's organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. I mean, um, do you remember the uh, spinach, the leafy spinach uh, event uh, issue that happened not more than four years ago? Well, actually, they finally release the results of what it was. It was chicken manure that a poor certified organic farmer used. I mean, he had no knowledge of it. He bought chicken manure from a fertilizer uh, manufacturer and um, he applied the chicken manure in the field. Well, what they did is because they had the overhead sprinklers, that's how you normally irrigate these leafy green fields. It's not like you have a drip irrigation or like a, or a ground irrigation like you would like a, an almond tree or, you know, right. or a wall, you know, an orange grove or something like that. They, they move the water back and forth, and you've seen it, too. It's all overhead. So imagine this, Eric. You can do the visual in your mind. You know, these uh, sprinklers that are on these big, almost like uh, metal wagon wheels. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen them out in, in you know, agricultural areas. You know, by the time these sprinklers shoot out, they're sometimes doing a 50, depending on the pressure, up to 125-foot radius. Think about that, from the center of the sprinkler. These are industrial two-inch, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, pressure release mount. So it's a forceful spray. Oh, it's very forceful, and that's the reason why. I mean, these guys are pushing this thing out, but they leave it there for a while. So just imagine this is droplet, not a droplet, maybe a drop. We should, really should call it <coughs> being shot up 30, 40 feet in the air, and then by the time it comes back down and it touches the soil, it splashes, right? And they didn't realize that it was in that splash. The E. coli was brought in from the chicken manure and it splashed up on the leaves. So if you do the visual in your mind, imagine this is the soil. This is a spinach plant right here. Most leafy greens will tend to want to tilt over this way, right? You have overhead irrigation, uh, soil, uh, fertilizer splashes up on the leaves. People come, they harvest the entire uh, you know, uh, head of uh, spinach. They do their best processing it that they can. They just run it under purified water. That doesn't necessarily mean you got rid of the e, you know, e. coli or, or, or salmonella or any of the other um, um, you know, diseases that come along with the chicken manure. But that's what happened. 208 people died because a guy used certified organic fertilizer that was made of chicken manure. And, and that's scary. That is very scary. No one had any malintent, but that's how that happened. So... Um, and, and that was so I have a question for you all 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 uh, you know packaged spinach that I buy in the store it says pre-washed ready to consume would you suggest washing your spinach before you consume it then that's a great question and obviously there's been a whole cottage industry built on that the guys that say hey use a spinach or this um, this green wash you see those guys that sell that you know you spray your spinach or or anything any pro right and then you let it sit there then you can uh, eat it I believe there's a difference between organic spinach that's bought from the store and the guys that actually go out of their way, the food processors that they go out of their way, and they tell you, this has been uh, cleaned and is ready to eat. Now, I think a lot of us assume when we find spinach or other leafy greens in prepackaged uh, you know, bags, we assume that somebody's prepared it for us and we don't have to do anything with it. It's almost like the moment something's chopped up, we assume it's been washed and it's clean and we don't have to do anything. Put it in the bowl, right. add your dressing to it, you're good to go. And that's not necessarily the case. So you have to be very, very sensitive of that. Especially if you're buying in bulk at the, pro, at the uh, supermarket and you just see a head of lettuce or, or, or a bunch of uh, spinach or whatever. Really rinse that out. And all of us have had this experience. We've all taken a head of, um, what's a good one? Romaine lettuce. And as we're kind of peeling apart the first few leaves, You'll notice at the very base there, there'll always be like, you know, some soil locked at the bottom. Well, if you're an organic yep. grower, what do you think is down there? Just pure minerals, just pure sand, silt, and clay? Don't you think there's some uh, residue of whatever fertilizer that they used is down there, like, i.e., the chicken manure or potentially E. coli or other diseases? I mean, if it's in the soil and you and I can open up a head of lettuce and see soil residue, well, if the guy applied chicken manure, probably a pretty good chance it's in your lettuce and if you take that and you just assume well it's fine it'll be fine and eat it I mean you could become victim to a very violent illness and that's exactly what happened with that spinach outbreak that killed over 200 people in California um, so it can happen yes prepackaged if it says washed and cleaned ready to use I think that's about the only time I would personally let my guard down unless I grew it at home and when I grow stuff at home you know, I don't even wash it. I, I really don't. I don't need to. A little bit of soil is good for you. I mean, that's how we evolved as human beings. I mean, as babies, we crawled around, put our hands in our mouth. 
Well, I mean, I think, personally, I think that, you know, we evolved that way for a reason. I think it's, you know, it's kind of the, the higher power's way of, like, inoculating our intestines or our stomachs with, like, you know, basic bacillus subtilis. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Besides getting lactobacillus acidophilus from your uh, mom's milk, that's the first inoculum you're exposed to. And it's, you know, if you really think about microbes, which is the original question in organic gardening, if you think about it, the very first thing we do when we're born is we're inoculated by mom with lactobacillus acidophilus. Then the moment we're ready to crawl, we put our hands instinctively, we touch everything, so, you know, we crawl on the ground. I mean, this is not designed that we, we can, we're better than, uh, you know, the, the higher powers, you know, knowledge of allowing us to evolve this way. So, I mean, we crawl around, we put our hands in our mouth, and we have all these microbes that we put in our mouth, and that inoculate our stomach, that prepare us for real life. And, um, you know, I'm not sure if you knew this uh, fact, Eric, but most people, this is like the majority of human beings on Earth, the majority of, of us have between 400 to 500 uh, to 550 different species of bacteria that colonize our mouth. It doesn't matter how often you get your teeth clean. I don't care if you rinse with Listerine or hydrogen peroxide or anything. The microbes are always there. Now, sure, you can disrupt them, and you should by flossing and cleaning and all that. But the microbes are there for a reason. As you eat, these microbes that are colonizing your mouth, they go down into your stomach, and they have a function there. A big part of their function is to break down the food you just consumed and make it bioavailable for your small intestine to absorb. It's a, it's a big part of it. So, I mean, I don't want to be sterile. I mean, you know, I'm a probiotic guy. I love microbes. And uh, I think people that um, raise their children almost living in a clean room, I think they're missing it. I think those kids seem to get sick more often than less often. I think kids that are... I, I can say anecdotally of our family friends who are you know wiping down everything with antibiotics their kids are sick three times more than mine are and we we don't really you know we clean but we're not anal about it yeah i mean i think you know you have to evolve as, as a human being you have to be exposed to these things um but yeah there's a clear difference between not understanding that i shouldn't handle raw poultry um, on my counter and touch it and then let your kids play in it and let him put his hands in his mouth. That's not what I'm, you know, uh, insinuating at all. I'm just insinuating, or I'm just saying that if you have a child and he's crawling around, it's okay if, if he wipes, you know, the soil, uh, even from the street in his mouth. I guarantee you 99.99% of the time, it's inert. There's nothing in it. I mean, a more dangerous place for a child is a kitchen, an unsanitary kitchen. Not the backyard playing in the soil. That's safe. It's dry. Diseases don't, you know, live on the top of the soil, typically speaking, unless it's a very moist environment that somebody introduced some meat products to, and it remains moist, and diseases, you know, can harbor uh, themselves there and, and really, you know, culture themselves and, and grow and, and multiply. And then you have an imbalance in the soil where the pathogens or their numbers outnumber the beneficial microbes. I mean, unless we're dealing in a situation like that, which is very rare, um, your kids are very safe, and I would highly encourage uh, parents to let their kids go out and play and, and get their hands dirty, and you don't have to wipe them down. And especially if you're an organic gardener and you're not using chicken manures and, uh, or, or even steer manures and um, 
you know, things of that nature. Uh, you know, your kids should be able to just do whatever they want to do, you know? And, yeah, I, I think our immune system, you know, um, if you're constantly exposing your immune system to various bacteria, fungi, viruses, it's like lifting weights, you know, you're, you're training, you're building that, you know, muscle uh, of sorts for when it actually does get attacked by something really bad, then it's, you know, strong and primed and ready to fight. So exactly. Um, yeah, don't don't be afraid of microbes. They're they're our friends in some sorts. In a large your, part, really. Eric, they are our friends. I mean, you know, there's some really bad bugs out there. Obviously, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Hopefully, on the tail end of it. But that's a virus. That's not a living organism. It attacks living organisms. Viruses are very different. Obviously, you know that. But I mean, it's there's a few bad bugs out there. I get it but they get all the attention. I mean, no one, you know, does entire shows on, hey, here's a really good bacteria. Let's make it very sexy. Let's talk about it. Let's make a show about it. Let's write articles about it. I mean, the majority of living organisms on Earth are good organisms. They're not bad organisms. And um, you and I are in the business of culturing good organisms and understanding them. I mean, don't play with, um, here's a Bacillus cereus. That's a, uh, you know, it's a food poisoning type of a bacteria, and it's in everyone's kitchen. If you have meat products that have stayed in your, in your, uh, in your, uh, uh, sorry, your refrigerator too long, you don't want your kids to play around with that meat that's been in there for maybe 10 days and then putting their hands in their mouth. I mean, that's just common sense, though. I mean, you know, but we as humans are aware of it. If it has that foul smell, we're just kind of, we don't want to touch it. But, it, you know, you have to get into those situations to where, Meat has to be rotting, and usually diseases are always found around rotting carcasses of some sort or another. That's where the diseases are the majority of the time are found. They're not usually found around decomposing plant material or decomposing trees or even decomposing other microbes. Diseases don't typically harbor, harbor themselves or, or, or multiply in situations like that. They always multiply and are found around a rotting body or around, for example, if somebody is in the fertilizer business or in the, the meat byproduct business, they may not directly be in the, the meat business itself, but they're still spreading these meat byproducts in the, in the form of a fertilizer to millions of square feet through, you know, through the guise of, of a fertilizer. Um, blood meal, meat meal, very common byproducts of, of the American, uh, you know, uh, industry. We eat a lot of meat in America. I mean, we're a blessed country and, uh, you know, we're a very wealthy country. And a lot of us eat red meat every single day. Um, so there's a lot of uh, blood meal and uh, bone meal that's available. And as you know, which is really disgusting, not only when they make these, um, these feeds for, uh, for chicken manure, which is a subject you and I are really highly focusing on, not only do they use these GMO grains in, in the form of uh, corn uh, and uh, soy, but they're also adding blood meal and, uh, and bone meal to these feeds. That's how they give them protein and calcium and phosphorus. Phosphorus is a big deal. I mean, you're either giving these chickens triple phosphate or some form of, you have to give them phosphorus, or a synthetic, uh, you know, uh, phosphorus. You know, one dose gets them through their entire life. 
But yeah, they have to kind of feed these chickens back the byproduct of, you know, the, the pork industry. And, you know, they make feeds out of all this stuff. It's, it's, it's rather disgusting when you really think about it. I mean, you're feeding chickens, you know, the byproducts of the, 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 the cow industry. I mean, think about that. Milo, it's, it, it's actually even worse than that. Uh, I don't know if you heard this story from Jeff, but he related to me last week. He was talking with one of our packaging uh, people at lunch talking about our episode and, and, the, and chicken farming and, and the manure. And some guy, you know, tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. Uh, I'm actually a chicken farmer. And so Jeff was like, okay, so what do you think about what we were talking about there? And he said, what you were saying was totally accurate. That is how the industry works. And so Jeff asked him, okay, so what is your farm like? And he said he's got a, basically a football field sized building with four levels of chickens. The best chickens are on the top level and they get the actual food and then as it goes down the lower level chickens are eating whatever food falls down but then also the manure from the chickens above them and honestly uh and he was an egg farmer uh he wasn't uh harvesting whole birds but god i don't know if i want to eat eggs uh again after hearing that story i was uh Thank God it was after lunch. Otherwise, I would have lost my appetite. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, uh, I think we owe it to the listeners to let them know that there's two types of chicken manure. And I mean, not that I, we we're encouraging that people run out unless they're, you know, farming or raising their own chickens. And I'll reiterate this again. I love chicken manure. And I'm going to send you pictures of my own chicken coop, which is directly behind my office. My chickens are treated like... You know, the back of my window, I open up the window and I can, the chickens are running. It's kind of they're like in a, um, like at a zoo, but it's, that, that's how much I love my chickens. So I, I love chickens. They're manure I use in, in my farm uh, every year. There's two types of chicken manures. And um, there's chicken manure from, uh, from uh, egg layers, totally different nutrition profile. And there's, and there's manure from, the, uh, from uh, broilers um, or boilers. Uh, for uh, chickens that are grown for their meat uh, exclusively. And again, that's why the phosphate becomes a big deal uh, with, with the layers. I mean, you have to have those, uh, um, the eggshell strong enough to be able to, you know, to hold it, its own weight, of, you know, that um, uh, the yolk and the embryo, embryo and, and everything else. You know, there's, you know, chickens, they weigh a, a good amount of weight. But the nutrient profile with uh, those types of chicken farmers is, is huge you know the, one of them is going to contain um more protein thus more nitrogen and the other one's going to contain more phosphorus and less nitrogen and they're fed totally different uh, types of diets with the exception of the base is always going to be um, corn and soy the guys that are growing eggs will add more of the phosphorus like the bone meal things of that nature they want to make sure those eggs have that structural integrity to be able to move around. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, but it's it's the same thing though. I mean, I think you know both types of farmers are uh, you know the manure is the manure is the manure. But that story you just said, I mean, I know that um, I was reading an article from uh, Purdue University over the weekend uh, about how chickens were making other chickens ill because by the time it passes through their uh, digestive system and and you know it's 
the uh, you know their manure comes out. Other chickens are eating it right away, and that's how the uh, the uh, disease spreads. You know, in her flock, is that chickens eat you know their uh, their neighbors' manure, and as they're pecking through to get the food, and that's more of an open type of a farm situation, a real farm situation. I mean, I've yeah, seen that's going to happen. It's going to happen, but to put guys on the very top and assume the chickens on the bottom. <laughs> Those poor bottom chickens, man. I do feel bad for them. Yeah, it's like a horror movie I heard of a while back. <laughs> Unreal. Um, yeah, so I guess to you know put a nice bow on this uh, interview here, if you're going to, if you want food security, you got to grow your own to the best of your ability. And if you're going to grow your own, you might as well use you know the best products. That would be Dr. Earth organic uh, soils and, and fertilizers, smart pots, our, our fabrics are, you know, made in the USA and tested for heavy metals and, and BPA. So uh, when you when you use quality inputs, you get quality outputs. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, thank you for that, uh, for the for the plug for the Dr. Earth products. And, you know, I'll, uh, I'll reciprocate that in kind. And, uh, you know, this is not a commercial. I mean, I love smart pots. For, for many reasons, but one of them is you guys have got this amazing fabric and um, the entire unit breathes. And you and I were talking about microbes and the importance of microbes. Well, you have to imagine the entire container needs to be treated like, like an aquarium, like its own standalone stand kind of um, ecosystem. And the more oxygen that we can bring into that root zone from all sides, Roots need to breathe just like the just like the foliage, you know, above uh, the soil need to breathe. So I mean, your containers are phenomenal for that reason, and they make our products work even better because the Doctor Earth products are all inoculated. Even our soils are all inoculated with the beneficial organisms, and in your containers, because you facilitate oxygen all the way around, we've noticed that the nutrient release in the smart part, the smart, smart pots, raised beds, and this is the only place we tested it in the raised beds, is far better than nutrient release in a normal raised bed that's built out of cinder block or wood or anything uh, of that nature. So yes, you, uh, you know, having a really good uh, container that breathes. I love your raised beds. I mean, I think, you know, back to like, why would we even, uh, you know, grow all of this food? Well, we want the food security. We want the best quality food. And if they're using, you guys have got these really neat raised beds with a smaller footprint. I mean, I think everybody should have 10 raised beds. There's no reason why. I mean, you guys make some nice compact ones that are, what, two feet by about six feet, if I recall. I, we have some of the bigger ones at our home, but I think you guys even make them more compact like that, right? Yeah, we're coming out with, uh, with a little shorty version uh, that's three feet long instead of the six feet like our uh, standard raised bed planter. Okay, so th those those are very easy instant raised bed garden tomorrow those can be set up and you've got your food security uh, addressed and the nice thing about your containers and you can use ones with larger footprints and smaller footprints you can really layer them all over the you know the side yard the front yard the backyard behind the garage any place you can grow grow i'm blessed because i can even grow at my office at my work i mean i think a lot of guys can take these raised beds to their shop. I mean, if you're a mechanic, even if you're a mechanic and you have motor oil all over the place, 
That's the beautiful thing about having a raised bed. You can have this totally certified organic garden at the office. And you know, you can feed the guys with you, you know, certified tomatoes and cucumbers and whatever you're growing. I mean, I, I love that idea of being able to uh, just pop up a raised bed at a moment's notice and start gardening. Um, yep. That's a really neat thing to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, people should, you know, they should have 10 raised beds, but you know, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single footstep. So, you know, if you're intimidated, just start with one raised bed, get a bag of, uh, you know, good quality Dr. Is soil, or, you know, if you have good soil, fill that, and then you can always amend it with uh, Dr. Fertilizer products, and uh, you will be successful as long as you remember to water. Absolutely, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's, you know, water and sunlight. And, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to uh, have everybody using Dr. Earth products, I would just prefer everybody garden and, uh, and be successful at it. I mean, so if Dr. Earth isn't available to you, that's okay. Just garden. Buy products that you can trust, that you, can, that you know don't contain anything that can potentially make you uh, ill. So read the labels. You don't have to use Dr. Earth. It's okay. There's a lot of great products in the United States. Just make sure, especially the soil part of it, Eric, more important than anything else. They really need to make sure that that soil has not been enriched with uh, manures of any sort, cow manure, chicken manure, any of that. Because I think a lot of um, manufacturers that even sell in bulk at local yards, I think they're also ignorant and they don't know. And they think they're doing a good thing. And they say, you know, they'll clearly advertise, enriched with chicken manure, uh, so on and so forth. So, I mean, pay attention to even the bulk yards and what you're getting out of there. If it's not just pure fur bark shavings mixed with some peat moss and other inert ingredients, if it's been enriched, make sure you pay attention to the manures. I mean, again, that's why we're having this entire interview. It's all about the manures. I mean, we want to just keep our eyes open for the, with edibles. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this has been uh, another fascinating, eye-opening discussion with you, Milo. Um, I'm always learning new things, and I think as gardeners, we should always strive to be learning new things. Um, and uh, I, I think we're fortunate to have, you know, advocates like you uh, who are, you know, fighting for good positive change and i'm right along there with you so hopefully we can have some more um uh, thought-provoking discussions down the road on the podcast so on that note i wanted to thank you for your time and uh w wish you all the best till we see you again thank you very much always a pleasure speaking with you sir thank you thank you